Since today is the feast of the great apostles, St. Peter and Paul, we'll take a few minutes to consider the martyrdom of the Prince of Apostles, our first Pope, St. Peter. And to do that, we'll take a brief look at three characters, St. Peter, Simon Magus, and the Emperor Nero. St. Peter. St. Peter is a brother of St. Andrew the Apostle. He's a fisherman from Bethsaida, a town on the banks of Lake Tiberias. It's also the hometown of St. Philip the Apostle. St. Peter and Andrew moved from Bethsaida to Capernaum to fish. One day St. Andrew heard a fiery preacher by the name of St. John the Baptist point out Christ our Lord as the true Lamb of God. And that inspired St. Andrew to spend the rest of the day with Christ our Lord. After just spending a short time in our Lord's company, St. Andrew was totally convinced that he had found the Messiah, so went running back to fetch his brother Peter and tell him so. Peter immediately believed his brother St. Andrew and went to meet and follow our Lord. Our Lord told St. Peter and Andrew to follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And as the scriptures tell us, they immediately left their nets and followed him. And as we heard in today's gospel, later our Lord made St. Peter the St. Peter, the first pope, he made him the foundation rock of the church. After Pentecost, St. Peter went to Antioch and established and governed the church in Antioch from the year 33 to about the year 40, although during this whole time he did frequently travel to carry the faith into other lands, as is clear from both Holy Tradition and also his first epistle which makes it clear he preached in Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and the Roman province of Asia before he finally landed in Rome. We know that St. Peter led an incredibly mortified life. St. Gregory Nanzianzen reported that although St. Peter would, on special occasions, eat whatever was placed in front of him, in general, his total diet consisted only of a small amount of bitter herbs each day. And that was it. St. Peter finally arrived in Rome around the year 40, and although he continued to travel frequently to spread the faith, he was in Rome on and off for roughly the next quarter century. That's just a little bit of background of St. Peter, who's Simon Magus. In chapter 8 of the Acts of the Apostles, St. Luke tells us about it. Quote, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and there proclaimed to them the Christ. And unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the nation of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all gave heed to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is that power of God which is called great. And they gave heed to him because for a long time he had amazed them, with his magic. But when they believed Philip, they were baptized. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your silver perish with you, 
because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come on me. Close quote, the Holy Spirit. So we have a very clear picture that Simon Magus, the second character, is a magician from Samaria. And of course, everyone knows the third character. He was ruling Rome at this time, Nero. Nero is one of the incredible monsters of all time. He gives us some idea of what the reign of the Antichrist will be like. But of course, this man came from quite a family. Just a thumbnail sketch will give you an idea of his background. Nero was the son of his mom's first husband. Her second husband died mysteriously shortly after completing a will in which she was the principal benefactor. Then in the beneficiary, then in the year 48, she got married to her third husband, the Emperor Claudius, who had a son of his own by another marriage. She manipulated Claudius to adopt Nero as his own son, and then had Nero marry Claudius' daughter. Then in the year 51, Nero's mom fed her husband a nice dish of mushrooms. Unfortunately, they were poison mushrooms. Now that the Emperor Claudius was dead, Nero's mom managed to manipulate the situation until, in the year 54 AD, at the age of 17, he took the throne as a Roman emperor. Initially, the great Stoic philosopher Seneca, who had been Nero's tutor, continued to guide and advise Nero, but as things gradually got worse and worse, Seneca retired from public life. Incidentally, the great fathers and doctors of the church, St. Jerome and St. Augustine, note that Seneca and St. Paul the Apostle carried on a lengthy correspondence. Unfortunately, all those letters have been lost. And for those of you that read the scriptures frequently, you'll notice in Acts 18, Paul is hauled up before Gallio. Gallio, the proconsul, is actually Seneca's brother. Anyway, to make a long story short, at a pleasant dinner with family and friends, Nero poisoned his stepbrother. Then he got tired of his wife, so he had her smothered in a steam bath. He took another wife, but later, in a little fit of anger and frustration, he kicked her to death while she was pregnant and found another wife. In the meanwhile, he was getting tired of dear old mom, so he tried to poison her about three times with no result. He tried to rig rig the ceiling of her bedroom so it'd fall on her, collapse and kill her, didn't work. So he finally decided to to invite her to a big banquet out on an island, and he had a special ship built to bring her out there where the bottom would collapse at his command, and he could drown her. Well, the bottom collapsed, but the ship didn't sink fast enough, so she just swam away. So he finally just sent one of his guys of the club to beat dear old mom to death. All this by the age of 21. And then after his mom died, Nero finally took a turn for the worse. It was good up till then. Anyway, to skip large parts of his history, in 64 AD, according to the testimony of the pagan historians, including Tacitus and Suetonius, as well as the Catholic authors, Nero himself gave the order to set Rome on fire. During this terrible fire, thousands upon thousands of people were incinerated, and out of the 14 districts of Rome, three were totally burned and seven were partially wrecked. 
Now Nero was conveniently out of town when it was torched, but when he heard that Rome was burning, he hurried back, climbed to the top of a viewing tower to survey the sea of flames engulfing Rome and incinerating so many of those people. And he didn't fiddle, because the fiddle hadn't been invented yet, but instead he was said to have played his lyre and sang a song about the fall of Troy. The fire raged for nearly a week. Afterwards, informers bribed by Nero announced that the Christians had set Rome on fire. Then, just as now, degenerate hardened sinners are offended by the inflexible, intolerant morality of good Catholics. Nero began a fierce persecution throughout the empire. In a typical Neronian move, he'd have garden parties. Since this is the days before electric lights, when the sun would go down, he'd have Christians tied to stakes, have pitch poured over them, and then just light them, so you'd have living, burning torches as they're being martyred. This is the kind of man the Emperor Nero was. There's one more facet of Nero's character that needs to be understood. Besides fancying himself to be a great poet and a fantastic singer, more than anything else, he longed, he really longed, to be the greatest sorcerer in the world. And he spared absolutely no expenses in attempting to become a master of the black arts. And all this played into the hands of Simon Magus. That's right, the same Simon Magus who had been rebuked by St. Peter in Samaria as we just heard in the Acts of the Apostles, had since achieved great fame in Rome. St. Justin Martyr describes this situation in a book he sent to the emperor and the senate of Rome around 150 A.D. St. Justin Martyr, quote, And after the ascension of our Lord into heaven, the demons put forth certain men who they said were gods. One of them was Simon, the Samaritan of the village of Jiddo, who in the reign of Claudius Caesar performed in your imperial city some mighty acts of magic by the art of demons working within him. He was considered a god, and as a god, was honored by you with a statue, which was erected on an island in the river Tiber between the two bridges and bore this inscription in a Latin tongue, Simone Deo Santo, that is, to Simon the Holy God. And nearly all the Samaritans and a few of other, even of other nations confess and worship him as God. Close quote, St. Justin Martyr. In his book Against the Heresies, that brilliant father of the church, St. Irenaeus, who was himself a disciple of St. Polycarp, and St. Polycarp had been trained by St. John the Apostle, St. Irenaeus describes St. Magus' career after he had been rebuked by Saints Peter and John. Quote, Simon Magus set himself eagerly to contend against the apostles and applied himself with still greater zeal to the study of the whole magical art that he might the better bewilder and overpower multitudes of men. This man then was glorified by many as if he were a god, and he taught that it was himself who had appeared among the Jews as the son, but had descended in Samaria as the father, while he came to the other nations in the character of the Holy Spirit. He represented himself, in a word, as being the loftiest of all powers, that is, the being who is the Father over all. Close quote, St. Irenaeus, Father of the Church. Okay, so, meanwhile, besides Saint Magus, Simon Magus being back on the scene and a terrible persecution raging, by this time, both St. Peter and St. Paul are in Rome. And in the midst of the persecution, the faithful kept imploring St. Peter to flee Rome, and to direct the church while hiding in exile. 
St. Ambrose points out that though St. Peter would have preferred to stay and suffer, they finally coaxed him into fleeing the city. So St. Peter set down, set down that great Roman road, the Appian Way, and just as he reached the gate leaving the city, he ran into Christ our Lord, heading into town, an apparition of Christ. Lord, where are you going? St. Peter asked. And Christ our Lord replied, to Rome, to be there crucified again. Instantly, St. Peter understood our Lord and turned back to town to face his own martyrdom. He went back and wrote his second epistle, and he alludes to this incident in verse 14 of the first chapter when he states, the laying away of this tabernacle, by which he means his body, the laying away of this tabernacle is at hand, according as our Lord Jesus Christ also hath signified to me. According to St. Epiphanius and Tertullian, he consecrated St. Clement as a bishop and enthroned him in his own chair at that time, declaring that St. Clement should be his successor, the Bishop of Rome, the second pope. Okay, so now we have the stage set. Both St. Peter and Paul are in Rome. There's a persecution raging against Catholics. An absolutely diabolical maniac is an emperor of Rome. He wants to become a great magician. Simon Magus, who's been chased out of the Middle East by the Apostle St. Peter, is now in Rome and just happens to be Nero's favorite sorcerer. According to a host of church fathers, including St. Justin, St. Ambrose, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, and St. Augustine, Simon Magus, in his satanic arrogance, decided to imitate the ascension of Christ our Lord, and so he told the emperor and the people that he would fly through the air. Even Dion Chrysostomus, a pagan author, states that for a long time Nero kept the magician in his court who promised to fly. And so it came to pass that Simon Magus announced that on a certain day he would fly in the air. In front of a great crowd, with Nero himself watching from his imperial booth, Simon Magus began to fly through the air by demonic power. By the prayers of St. Peter and Paul, he came hurtling down to earth. The pagan author Suetonius describes the scene. Quote, Scarcely had this Icarus begun to poise his flight, than he fell close to Nero's booth, which was sprinkled with his blood. Close quote. The pagan author Suetonius. As one of the fathers sarcastically remarks, he that only moments before was flying like a bird could now not even walk like a man. His legs shattered, Simon Magus died, raging a few days later, angry and impenitent. The defeat of Nero's favorite sorcerer at the hands of the apostles Peter and Paul meant that it was merely a question of time. Orders went out for their arrest. St. Peter was captured and kept in a dungeon of maritime prison. On the 29th of June, 67 AD, he was drawn up, led outside the city walls by the Vatican Hills, and scourged. Before he was crucified, he begged his executioners to not place him upright on the cross, but rather upside down. As he told them, the servant should not be seen in the position once taken by the master. St. Peter was crucified, nailed to the cross upside down, and died. And at that moment, Rome became the new Jerusalem. St. Paul could not be crucified because he was a Roman citizen. It was forbidden to crucify a Roman citizen. But on the same day, June 29, 67 AD, St. Paul was led out two miles on the Ocean Way to be executed. 
St. Clement seems to indicate that Nero himself was present at this execution. St. Paul knelt down, prayed, bandaged his eyes, and awaited the sword. A soldier lopped off his head and it bounced three times. Three springs immediately began to flow at the spot, which is why it's now called Tres Fontaines, the Three Fountains. Today, the heads of the two apostles are kept in civil reliquaries in the Basilica of St. John Lateran. St. Paul is buried in the Basilica of St. Paul's outside the walls. St. Peter is buried directly under the main altar in St. Peter's Basilica. And if you visit the Vatican today and go up to the main altar, move off to the left of the side altars, you'll find a soil altar with the scene of his upside-down crucifixion. If you were to drop a plumb bob from the back of that altar to the ground, that's where St. Peter was crucified. If you go on the outside and ask the Swiss guard, you can go over to the side. There's a plaque on the outside of the basilica that shows where St. Peter was crucified. You can also take the Scavi tour by asking a Swiss guard how to sign up for it, and that will bring you all the way underneath the floor in the excavations underneath St. Peter's Basilica to see his very tomb itself. Saints Peter and Paul. Today at Holy Mass, remember especially to thank God for the great example of Saints Peter and Paul, to pray that your faith will be strengthened by their faith, that you will remain faithful to the descendant of Saint Peter. Pray especially for holiness and protection for the 264 successor of Saint Peter, our Holy Father the Pope, John Paul II.